Please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 54, 1 through 10. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is the word of God. Would you join me in bowing to pray one more time? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand and believe your word. And I thank you for every precious life in this room, as well as church members and friends and family who can't be here physically today, but are going to be joining us through video. Lord, we just thank you for the abundance of your gifts. And I ask for your help right now. Let us hear your word clearly so that we may know you and trust you and love you with all of our hearts. Forgive our sins, Lord, and let this be a blessed and transforming time together. In Jesus' name, amen. The main message I want you to hear from the prophet Isaiah today is very simple and profound, and it is, God loves you. God really, really, really loves you. That's one of those things that we may sometimes say so often or hear so often in church that we forget the profound depth of the sentence, God loves you. What we're saying is the creator of the universe, eternal, holy, absolutely pure, all-powerful, cherishes you 
That's why you exist. You wouldn't exist unless he loved you. And he wills the good for you. He desires to bless you. And in willing the good for you, especially he wills for you to enjoy loving relationship with himself. God loves you. That's the main message. So everybody say, God loves me. That's true for every person on the planet. It's true for every person in this room. And I don't say this lightly because I know from my own experience and from talking to many other struggling people trying to follow Jesus, that one of the most difficult things in the world to really believe is that God really, 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 really loves you. For a lot of people, maybe some of you here don't struggle with that at all. You just always believe the scriptures. You always believe the gospel and you know that God loves you. But for me and for a lot of Christians, sometimes it's a real struggle. For me personally, sometimes it's easier to believe that he loves other people. I believe that he loves the world. I believe that he loves hurting people. I believe that he loves other sinners But sometimes I just feel like, but he couldn't love me because I've got an insider's view of how messed up I am. Prideful, self-centered. There's just a long list of stuff in me that isn't as it ought to be. And I struggle to believe that God loves me. And again, maybe some of you don't struggle with this, but I know that a lot of you in here do. So I want you to hear the message of Isaiah Loud and clear, God loves you. And He loves you with a compassionate love. He loves you with an everlasting love. God wills the good for you, to bless you, to give you joy, not to harm you. And in this text, we're going to see specifically that even when you feel lifeless, dried up, without hope for the future, God loves you. And in this text, we're going to see it's not just when you feel lifeless, but when you feel like a total sinner. Some of you are listening to me right now and you're thinking, yeah, but you don't really understand my sin. I've rebelled against God. God's angry at me. I'm under the discipline of God. Our text is going to show us that might be true. God hates sin. Some of us in this room might have been have come here today having been living in sin, living in rebellion against God, choosing evil. Perhaps he is disciplining you. But even so, God loves you. Don't lose hope. That's the message of Isaiah, because he only he disciplines those whom he loves. God loves you. That's the message. Now, to hear what Isaiah is saying, it can be helpful to go back and understand again The context of this prophecy, hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth. And Isaiah has, in fact, been warning and rebuking people for their sin. God's people of Israel, city of Jerusalem, and by implication, all the people of Israel. And as we've discussed over the last few weeks, in particular, Isaiah has been rebuking the people for the sins of idolatry and injustice. Idolatry means they have false gods. They don't worship God rightly. And injustice means they don't treat people rightly either. So all their relationships are broken by sin. And he has warned them and he has pled with them. Stop sinning. Come back to God. He'll forgive you. He'll restore you. But the people have persistently 
resisted God's word, rebelled against God's word, failed to listen to the prophet. And so now, foreseeing their stubbornness and God's coming act of discipline and judgment, he has told the people, you're going to be carried off into exile because God is disciplining you. The people whom God gave the promised land, he's about to kick out of the promised land. The people whom God gave the temple and said, you can always meet with me in the temple and I'll hear your prayer. That temple's about to be destroyed. They're going to fall under God's discipline and his judgment. And in that moment, when they hear that word, and then especially years later, when that word is fulfilled, it would be easy to lose hope. Be easy to give up and say, we've gone too far. God can't love us anymore. My sin is too great. Satan, the word Satan means accuser. He's the accuser of the saints. And he loves to, first of all, get us to sin. And then after we sin, he loves to tell us, you've gone too far. God can't love you. So these are people who are wrestling with that sense of hopelessness, of despair, of being cut off from God. So if there's anybody in this room who feels like, OK, yeah, everybody else in here basically believes that God loves them and is basically a good person and a good Christian. But you don't know about me. You don't know about my doubts. You don't know about my sin struggle. I'm not like everybody else. First of all, you are like a lot of people in this room because you're not the only one thinking and feeling that. But second of all, this text is for you. Sometimes we don't believe the word of God for ourselves, but we believe it for other people. So I need you to help me out. Turn to your neighbor and say to them, God loves you. To speak to these people who are wrestling with those thoughts of despair, Isaiah, in our passage today, gives three encouraging words. Let me show you these words. The first encouraging word that Isaiah gives is this. She who was barren is going to give birth to many children. God will turn your barrenness into fruitfulness and life. That's what verse one is all about. Let's look at it again together. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now, there are some people in this room or who will listen to this message online who know firsthand from your experience the pain that can be associated with the struggle of infertility. You want to have a baby. You dream of having, giving birth, of bringing life into the world, of nurturing that, and continue to face frustration in one way or another. It can be incredibly, incredibly painful. I haven't had to face that struggle because God blessed our family with a lot of kids, but the Bible is filled with characters who knew that struggle firsthand and who knew it for decades. And as a matter of fact, one of the recurring manifestations of God's grace throughout the Bible is that God sees that barren woman or that man who is struggling with infertility and he has compassion and he reverses their situation. Think for a moment about Sarah and Abraham. They longed for a child. They prayed for a child and decades passed. Sarah's 90 years old and then miracle God gives her a child, Isaac, the child of promise. Think of Hannah, who was loved by her husband, Elkanah, but it wasn't enough. She longed to give birth to a child, to bring life into this world, to nurture a baby. And she prayed and she cried out to God. 
And then Eli came and told her, God heard your prayer. And she gave birth to Samuel, who grew to be the prophet. Or think about Elizabeth and Zechariah. Old age for decades. They've prayed and prayed and waited and had probably given up hope. And then the barren woman conceived and gave birth to John the Baptist. God is able to powerfully move in that situation of barrenness to give life. Part of what's painful about barrenness is that children represent abundance of life and hope for the future. Abundance of life and hope for the future. Barrenness represents and often feels like the opposite of those two things. It doesn't feel like abundance of life. It can feel like my life is being dried up. And it doesn't feel like hope for the future. It feels like I'm about to be cut off and there is no hope. But God is able in that situation to bring life and to bring hope for the future. Now, this is something God really does for real individual mothers and fathers. But it's also here being used as a symbol for God's people, Israel. Remember, they had sinned against God. They had rebelled against God. Now God is disciplining them. He's sending them out into exile. But he's promising the dryness, the lifelessness and the hopelessness that you feel right now is not the end of the story. God is not done yet. He's saying God's about to give you abundance of life and hope for the future. Not only are you going to have children, you're going to have more children than you know what to do with. You're going to need a bigger tent, which is what the next couple of verses are about. Look at verse two and three. Enlarge the place of your tent. And let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. If this is written today, it would say something like, you're about to have so many kids that you're going to need some more rooms in your house, which feels kind of real for me right now. Stretch out your tent. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Israel, you're going to return from exile. You're going to experience physical blessing and health and renewal and multiplication, but also spiritual life and blessing and multiplication. And I would say to the person in this room, if you feel dry, if you feel desolate, if you feel like you don't have life and you can't give life to others, if you feel like there's no hope for the future, what the text is saying to you is God loves you. Don't give up hoping in God's love. Because he can meet you where you are in this situation and bring abundance of life and hope for the future. First word, she who was barren is going to give birth to many children. Second word Isaiah speaks is this. God's discipline will be short and it will give way to everlasting peace. Read with me verses 9 and 10 again. It says this. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should be no more, uh, should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Everybody say steadfast love. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So the story of. Noah reminds us of two things. One, it reminds us that God is a just judge. Back in the story of Genesis, God creates, God gives being, God gives life. And some of the imagery from those early passages of Genesis is that the earth was covered with waters representing chaos and an environment that was not inhabitable for human beings. But the word and the spirit of God move in his creation, 
gathering up that primordial chaos into a peace and a shalom in which human beings can thrive and flourish. But that human beings resist God and they turn away from God and they rebel against God. They become violent. They start hurting and oppressing one another. And God is grieved. And so God sends this flood, which is an act of decreation. The waters of chaos are wiping out the earth again. Uh, But that's not where the story ends. The story of Noah tells us about God's hatred for evil. But then it also tells us about God's grace. Because God does not wipe out human beings. He preserves life. And he has, does not give up on the project of humanity filling the world with God's life. So what the story of Noah is about is this. Because God is good and because God hates all the evil that messes up our world. He hates the greed and the selfishness and the violence. And he just hates it all. He says no to that evil. He won't let his creation be corrupted by that forever. But even as God says no in judgment to the evil of the world, he also says yes in his redemption and in his forgiveness and his act of creation. And that for his people, the yes will swallow up the no. The yes of God's grace is stronger than the no of God's judgment. There is hope. So the point of these verses of Isaiah is this. God's anger may last for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime, which is to say, if you sin and you're saying, Pastor, I'm not just suffering, I'm suffering and I know it's my fault. I've chosen evil and now I'm bearing the consequences for my sin and I'm experiencing God's discipline. Do not despair. God has not stopped loving you. God loves sinners. And he says to them. I will give you life. My anger is for a moment. My favor is for a lifetime. The worst thing you could do in that moment is run away from God because I don't want his judgment. Listen, do you know who's the only one that can save you from God's judgment? It's God. God's mercy. Run not away from him, but towards him. And this leads us to the third word Isaiah shares, which is the one I really want us to hear today. He says, your maker is your husband and he loves you with an everlasting love. Your maker is your husband. Let's look at verses four and eight, four through eight. The middle of our text is this fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded for you will not be disgraced for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. Everybody say, your maker is your husband. I want you to think about those words. You might underline them in your text. For your maker is your husband. Your creator God has bound himself to you in a covenant of love. That's what that means. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. You might circle that word redeemer. He's God is your maker. He's your husband. And he's your redeemer. They all go together. The God of the whole earth, he is called for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion. That's another important word that we're going to keep coming back to. Everybody say compassion. With great compassion, I will gather you and overflowing anger for a moment. I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, oh, those are good words. You might underline those ones. Everlasting love, 
I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. What is this text saying? First of all, let's get the story right. God is asking him to think about asking his people to think about their relationship with him as a story of a husband and a wife. And first of all, let me say what it might sound like God is saying here, which is what he's not saying. Get this straight. God is not saying, hey, my bad. I lost my temper. I kicked you out. But now I'm going to bring you back home. It's not saying that God is a moody husband who loses his temper and he abandoned his wife, but now he's bringing her back. That's not the story here. If you read the rest of Isaiah, that will be clear. Or better yet, go read the book of Hosea this week. You'll see that's not the story. Here's what the story is. God in his love found for himself a bride, a people, the people of Israel, and he pledged himself to them. They didn't do anything to deserve that or to earn that. But he pledged himself to them in love and he bound himself to them in a covenant relationship of love, a marriage covenant. Everybody say covenant. A covenant is a relationship based on promises and God made promises. He took the initiative. He said, I'm your God. You're my people. And he said, I want to, I will take care of you. I will bless you. You will enjoy a relationship with me. It's going to be good. But his people were like a foolish and unfaithful wife who first started sneaking out at night and cheating on him. And he knew. And he lovingly said, why would you do this? I want to satisfy you. You don't have to go anywhere else. But they didn't listen. And so they kept sneaking out at at night. And eventually they didn't even sneak out at night. Brazenly during the day. They would go and pursue other lovers. And be unfaithful to their husband. And God is... Send his prophets and he's saying to them, no, no, don't turn away from me. These lovers will use you. They'll abuse you. They'll destroy you. I'll take care of you. But Israel doesn't listen. So finally, they just leave. It's like a wife who says, I'm done with you. And she leaves and she goes and lives with these other lovers. But sure enough, they use her and they abuse her. And before long, she's become a prostitute and she's become enslaved and she's in bondage. She left and the husband could have stopped her, but he let her go. That's that's what those verses are talking about when it says for a brief moment, I deserted you. You can say for a brief moment, I let you go. Think of the phrase from Romans one, where it talks about human sinfulness being a turning away from the creator who would satisfy us to the creature that could never satisfy us. And God, in his mercy and grace, is pleading with us, come back, come back, come back. But for those who persist in rebellion, what his judgment looks like is saying, "Okay, go. Listen, there's nothing worse than that. Okay, go. There's nothing worse than God allowing sinful human beings to have our own way. This is why C.S. Lewis once observed, there's two kinds of humans. Those who learn to say to God, thy will be done which is life and joy and salvation, and those to whom tragically a loving God eventually says, thy will be done. That's judgment. The wife has run away. God, the husband, God, pleaded with her. No, I want to take care of you. No, those other lovers don't really love you. They'll use you. They'll abuse you. They'll exploit you. They'll enslave you. But finally, Israel was stubborn and he, he let her go. He let his people go. But now he says, now that you're enslaved, you're thinking, man, it was a lot better 
back with my husband. This story is a lot like the story of the parable of the prodigal son, but with a few key differences. Instead of father and son relationship, we're talking about a husband wife relationship. And in this story, the husband's not just waiting. The father's waited in that story for the son to come home. But here, what's happening is that the husband is now leaving the house and is going and searching for and finding that wife who has become enslaved. And he's coming to her as her redeemer. Everybody say redeemer. This is the the language of a kinsman redeemer, which in the Old Testament was a relative who had the responsibility to protect and to care for a family member, particularly when they were in a place of danger. And God says, though you left me, though you betray, uh, betrayed me, though I pleaded with you and you rejected me over and over and over again. And now you have made yourself a slave by spurning and rejecting my love. Yet I still love you and I'm coming for you and I will set you free and I will bring you home. That's the story of the text. That's the story of human history. That's the story of the gospel. This is a love which is compassionate. I told you to notice that word. Everybody say compassion. God loves you with a compassionate love, which means he he sees your suffering. He sees your struggle. He sees your weakness and he cares and he's merciful and he's willing to enter into your pain with you to heal your heart and to rescue you. He's compassionate. God loves us. With an everlasting love, which means for his wife that he's pledged himself to, he will never stop loving her. This is what Paul is talking about when Romans 8, when he says to Christians, listen, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing in heaven, nothing in hell, nothing on earth can separate us from this love. Now, Isaiah, with these three words, is speaking to people who are in a desperate situation And he's telling them about a future inbreaking of God's love. He's awakening hopes. He's awakening expectations. And we have to ask, how are those expectations going to be fulfilled? Well, over time, God's grace is going to be at work in the history of Israel. God's going to bring them home from exile. They're going to get to return to Jerusalem. The temple is going to be rebuilt. But as we've already seen throughout Isaiah, all of those little partial fulfillments are very partial. And Israel is still longing So that centuries later, the people of God were reading Isaiah and saying, God, when will your promises be fully fulfilled? And then Jesus came. That's why we lit a candle. I love the imagery of the candles. It's the imagery of light in a dark place. Hope that breaks into a situation of hopelessness. Listen to how Paul describes what Jesus does for us. This is a passage that if you're married, you probably studied in premarital counseling. But I want you to hear what it's saying about Jesus and about the love of God. Ephesians chapter five, verses 25 to 30 says, husbands, love your wives. It's a passage about marriage. But then it switches and says, actually, every human marriage, if it's a good marriage, is there for the simple purpose of being a living parable of God's love for you. And he goes on to describe God's love like this. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. What is that saying? Saying you remember back in Isaiah 54 when God promised to his wayward, rebellious people 
who rejected his love and sold themselves into slavery. He said, I would redeem them. Paul's saying, now that has been fulfilled. God himself came in the purpose and the person of Jesus to redeem us from slavery. And the way that he set us free from slavery was by giving his life for us on the cross. By giving himself and dying for our sin, Jesus came to free us from slavery to sin. Text continues. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. That means set her apart for himself, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Jesus is committed to loving you until you have become beautiful. Here's the thing. Good news number one is Jesus loves you despite the fact that you're not worthy. But good news number two is Jesus loves you so much he's going to make you worthy. He's going to make his church a bride who has been beautified and perfected and is ready to be united with him forever in his new creation. That he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. All sins are forgiven and all sinful impulses are rooted out so that we're free from the presence of sin so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Paul says, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Here's the point here. God is your husband. We are his bride. God loves us. But we have rejected his love. We've sold ourselves into slavery, but God still loved us and he loved us enough to come redeem us, to pay the price of his own life so that we could be set free from slavery and be glorified and beautified and perfected. And he could bring us home to enjoy relationship with him. Listen, I know there are some people in this room who, even though I've said all this, you're still thinking, yeah, but does it apply to me? I believe that God is a God of love, but could he really love me? I won't ask you to raise your hand. This is too serious for that. I've felt the struggle myself. I want you to hear the words of the most famous verse in the Bible. Some of you know it. It's written in graffiti all over the south side. I still don't understand why you would do graffiti with a Bible verse. But it's, it's written everywhere. John 3.16, you know the verse. What does it say? For God so loved the world. That's an important word. Everybody say the world. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever. Everybody say whosoever. That's another important word that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him. I want you to think about those two W words, the world and whosoever. In the Gospel of John, the world, the word world can be used to mean All of creation or all human beings or sometimes especially evil and rebellious human beings. And here. John, Jesus uses the word to mean all of that. God loves all of his creation. God loves all human beings. God loves sinful and rebellious human beings. He loves the world and he loves us so that whoever without exception believes in him may have eternal life. John 316 Is God saying to you so clearly that you can't ignore it? I love you. And if you want to know the measure of my love for you and of every individual person on the planet, look at Jesus and look at his cross. This is God, the invulnerable God, taking on vulnerability to suffer for us so that we can enjoy relationship with him, even though we've rebelled against him. 
Now, Martin Luther has a great sermon on John 3.16. And he's speaking to a congregation who struggles with the same thing I keep talking about. He says, I know some of you out there are thinking, I would believe this except for it can't apply to people like me. Jesus must have meant good people like Peter or Paul. And then he says something which maybe some people in this room um, can relate to of saying, or maybe you're thinking, mm, but he loves the predestined, but maybe I'm not one of the predestined. Maybe I'm not one of those he chose for salvation. And Luther says, stick your nose in the word of God and listen to what the word says. It says the world. It's talking about humanity. And Luther says, grab yourself by the nose and check if you are human. If you are, the word applies to you. God loves you. Listen, now listen to this word, whosoever. And if you're a human being, it applies to you. Whoever believes in him, the offer is available to anybody who trusts in him to be forgiven and to be reconciled to God. He says, you may think if if I was like Peter or Paul, then he'd love me. But listen, if God only loved pure people, he could have only loved angels because Peter and Paul were big sinners. Paul persecuted the church. Peter denied Christ. Even after Pentecost, after he'd become leader of the church, Peter's ethnocentrism sometimes blinded him to the radical implications of the gospel. These guys were sinners. And Luther's point in saying all this is saying, you have to either say the words, God loves me, or say the words, God is a liar. Those are the only options the Bible leaves open to you. Because his word is clear. He loves you. He loves you and he says to you, to all humanity, without exception, if you'll trust in Jesus, I will forgive you and I will cleanse you. And my love will come to dwell in your heart to transform you from the inside out so that you will become the beautiful bride whom I created you to be. When that's done, it'll look like this. Listen to Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jesus will have perfected his church. Doesn't it sound great to not struggle with sin anymore? To perfectly love God and perfectly love people, to be free from all self-centeredness and Pettiness. A bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That is describing the triumph of God's love in human history. The birth and death of Jesus Christ are the clearest revelation of human history of the depths of God's love. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the triumph of God's love in human history, where all wounds are healed, where all evil is cast out, where all those who have trusted in him by grace are gathered into the new creation to enjoy him forever. All tears wiped away. All wounds healed. Listen, I know there's people in this room who have been crying some serious tears over the last weeks and months. Health problems, lost loved ones, broken relationships. 
financial problems, battling your own sin, disappointments, hurt by other people's words, hurt by other people's actions. The list goes on and on. I know there's some serious wounds and some serious tears. And what we're saying is God promises, I love you. Every one of those wounds will be healed. Every one of those tears will be wiped away. That's the second coming of Jesus. The season of Advent is about preparing our hearts to celebrate Christmas. It's also also about preparing for the second coming of Jesus. God loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. He loves you with an unbreakable, everlasting love. And with our last few moments before we go to the Lord's Supper, I want to talk to you about how in these last few days before Christmas, we can together work on becoming a people who rest in that love, who abide in that love of God, who believe that love, and who live in a way that is getting ready for the second coming of Jesus and the triumph of God's love. And I want to tell you three things. If you want something practical to take away with this sermon, here you go. Here's three things. If you don't want anything practical, you can just tune me out now and bask in what we've already heard about God's love. But first, I want you to say the word surrender. Everybody say surrender. As I was praying for you, I just had that word coming to my mind. Listen, friends, if you want freedom and joy, surrender to the love of Jesus, which is the same thing as surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. Surrender to him. Surrender to him. You can do it right now. It's just in your heart saying, thy will be done. He taught us to pray it. In the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my life. Not my will, but your surrender. Sometimes I ask you when we're doing the benediction to hold your hands like this in a posture of reception. This is also a posture of surrender and the two go together. If you want to receive God's freedom and joy, you have to unclench your fist and not try to hold on to your life and your destiny. Surrender to his love. John Cassian, the fourth century Christian writer, said this. No one can say this. That's the prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No one can say this except one who believes that every circumstance, favorable or unfavorable, is designed by God's providence for good. God thinks and cares more for our good and our salvation than we do for ourselves. What John Cassian is saying is this. A person who really understands and believes those three words, God loves you, is a person who joyfully surrenders. Because saying God loves me means saying the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful creator cares more about my good and my joy and my eternal salvation than I ever possibly could. Which means if I say not my will but thine, I'm opening myself to freedom and joy. To live this way is to have nothing to fear, nothing to lose, and nothing to prove. Surrender. The second word is the word rest. Everybody say rest. I'm starting to realize that Jared really carries us in the call and response thing during the sermon. He's not here today. Everybody say rest. There we go. John 15, 9, Jesus says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Live out of my love. Rest in my love. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
What we're saying is by grace, we don't have to strive to try and be good enough for God to love you. Somebody has been hearing this sermon and the whole time you're thinking, yeah, God's love sounds great. I'm going to try really hard to be a good person next week so that he'll love me. That's missing it. You don't have to strive and work to get God to love you. God already loves you. Turn to your neighbor, tell them God loves you. That means he wills the good for you. He desires relationship with you. He cherishes you. He wants you to experience union with himself. He cares about your joy and he's more committed to it than you are committed to your own joy. And he just says rest. Here's the thing. That word surrender and that word rest are really the same word. Just saying, okay, you love me. I receive it. I trust you and that's enough. And then the third word is this word. Everybody say respond. Surrender, rest and respond. When we learn to rest in God's love, here's the thing. Resting in God's love frees us then to love other people with an act of love. Galatians 5, 6, Paul says this. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith in the Bible means learning to know and trust and rest in and surrender to God's love as it's been revealed in Jesus Christ. It means saying, not my will, but thine. It means saying, I believe that you love the good for me and you know what's best for me and I'm resting in your love. And what it says is, what matters in the Christian spiritual life is faith working through love, which means as we rest in God's love, that gives us a freedom and a power to begin to love God and to love all people in God. To love people. Listen, every human being is a precious gift. Every human life is invaluable. Every human life is precious, valuable beyond words. God loves every human being. To rest in his love also means to learn to see the people around you. Let's start in this room. Let's not be hypothetical. Just look around in this room. And what I want you to do is look at every face in this room and think, God loves that person with a compassionate love. God loves that person with an everlasting love. God wills the good for that person. God is committed to seeking joy for that person. And because God is, and because I've opened my will to God now, I want to get actively involved in pursuing the good. Now I want you to think about your neighbors. I want you to think about your family members. I want you to think about vulnerable people in your community. I want you to think about your enemies and put all of them in that category. Nobody's outside of this. If they're a human being, they're made in the image of God and they're cherished by God and they're loved by God and he wills the good for them. He longs for their joy. For me to rest in his love means that his love begins to flow through me so that I actively get involved in serving others. Actually, for some people in this room, if you're struggling to believe that God loves you, one of the knots you may be tied, maybe have tied yourself into is being really introspective and self-focused. And sometimes it's just the freedom of Going and serving others opens you up to believe that God loves you. First John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's not just talk about love, let's do it. So we're talking about active love. Part of the mark of the degree to which we've understood the message of Christmas is how much do we care about people in our community that have never heard the gospel? How much do we care about youth in our community that desperately need a mentor? How much do we care about people in our community who are trapped in generational poverty and who just need help? 
How much do we care? This is why we go start apartment Bible studies and share the gospel on college campuses. And this is why we're asking people to volunteer, to mentor at after school programs and to help with reading buddies in the schools. Because every human being is precious and is loved by God. A life of active love means for some people, you've got relationships that are broken. And before you go to bed tonight, if you need to skip your community group, that's okay. You need to go do everything in your power to make it right. Listen, friends, you cannot make other people forgive you. You cannot make other people like you. But you could choose to forgive. You could choose to love. There's somebody that you're holding at arm's length in bitterness. Do not delay another day. Surrender. Means be committed to opening your heart to God's love so that his love can flow through you and act of love towards others. Finally, Responding to God's love and active love means a life of active prayer. A Christian life is a life of prayer and it's like breathing. Prayer is like inhaling God loves for me and exhaling I love you God. And doing that over and over every day until that love has opened us up and changed our hearts. It's a life of prayer. So everybody say surrender, rest, respond. I'm going to say a prayer for you, and then I want to invite you, as you come to the Lord's Supper today, to remember the story that we just talked about. To come to the Lord's table is to admit, I'm that bride who was loved by God, and yet I rejected his love, I ran away from his love, and I sold myself into slavery. And Jesus is the Redeemer who came to seek me out and gave his body and blood for me. And I'm coming to the Lord's table to say, I surrender And I'm resting in your love because there's no other place of healing. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit would even now be strengthening us with power to believe that you love us. To know the height and width and depth and breadth of your love for us. God, I want to pray for anybody in this room who is struggling to surrender. Perhaps there's some sin that somebody doesn't want to let go of. They're seeking freedom in a path that can only be bondage. I pray that today would be a day of chains being broken, a day of surrender and freedom. Lord, I pray for some in this room who have been tormented by feeling like you couldn't possibly love them. That the word from the scripture and from Martin Luther that we either have to learn to say God loves us or God is a liar because your word is so clear about this would just penetrate our hearts and we would say, God, you are not a liar. Therefore, I'm resting in the truth. That you love me. Let that freedom be ours. And Lord, I would pray for myself and for others, Lord, as, as we rest in your love, that you would open us up, break us from the chains of self-centeredness, Lord, that there would be a freedom this week, throughout this Christmas season, and throughout our lives to participate in the joy of giving ourselves for the good of others, as Jesus invites us to do. We thank you, God. Thank you for loving us. Pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.